On April 24, 2012, Attorney Neil Rossini spoke with SDCF Producing Director Ellen Rusconi and a roundtable of directors and choreographers about copyright and the fair use defense and how artists can use existing work to create new work without infringing on copyright. Hello, I'm SDC Director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. Before we talk about parody, which is a, a kind of a subset of a subset of the general structure of, of, of copyright, let's just talk about what copyright is. Copyright is a legal monopoly for a limited period of time. It's a pretty long period of time, but it's a limited period of time. And in this country, the U.S. Constitution provides for that monopoly for a reason. Is it to make authors rich? Is it to compensate authors? No. It's to benefit society. It's for the purpose of enhancing the lives of citizens. And, and the scheme for doing that is to give authors a monopoly for a limited period of time during which they control certain rights, uh, after which the work is supposed to fall into the public domain and then, then become everybody's, everybody's property. During the period of monopoly by the author, the author is expected to exploit the work and make money. And that's the idea behind copyright, because it's to incentivize the creation of works, of copyrightable works, which become the monopoly of the author for a period of time and then fall into the public domain. Now, what, what kind of rights does an author monopolize? And when I say author, I'm using that term in the copyright sense. An author is someone who writes a work. Sometimes you're going to have joint authors, uh, but for simplicity, I'll just talk about the author. There are five rights under copyright, which are exclusive rights of the author. And you can follow along in your form here. First one is the right of reproduction. That's the one you always think of. That's the right to make copies. Copyright goes together. Right mm -hmm. to reproduce. There are four more, though. The next one is the right of adaptation. Each of these is an exclusive right of the author during the period of copyright. Right of adaptation, that's the right to make derivative works, the right to adapt one work, make another work. Can't do it without permission of the author. Third monopoly right is the right of distribution. That's the right to make copies and exploit them. It's really, it's really directed to the exploitation element. Uh, fourth, the right of public performance. That's the right not only to perform before a live audience, but also it involves transmission, broadcast transmission. That's also a right of public performance. And fifth, the right of public display, which applies to graphic works, posters, things like that. All right, so there are five rights monopolized by the author during the term of copyright. The general rule of copyright is very simple. If you exercise one of those rights without authority of the owner of copyright, it's an infringement. It's a problem. It's, it exposes you to civil liability and, in some instances, criminal liability. That's the general rule. Unless 
there's an exception. And what is the biggest exception that we're here to talk about? And that, uh, that's the exception of fair use. And the principle behind fair use is that this monopoly exists for a very good reason, to benefit society, not to make authors rich. And for a, uh, even, even during the period of monopoly, the, 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 the theory is that there should be a cutout in certain instances of that monopoly to benefit society during the term of copyright, not wait till the work enters the public domain. But during the public, during the term of copyright, there, under certain circumstances, there's cause enough to take a bite out of that monop out of that monopoly and let somebody else do something without asking permission. So that gets us to the fair use defense. Fair use defense is in the Copyright Act. Uh, it wasn't always, but it is now. And it um, it favors certain types of use without the permission of the owner of copyright. Parity is one of them. If you follow along here, criticism such as quoting something, putting in the newspaper, criticizing it, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, research, and non-commercial personal use. Those are the, the favored categories of fair use. And you'll note that parity is first on the list. But is it simply the case that if you write a parody, you enjoy the benefit of fair use simply by, by virtue of having written the parody and don't have to ask for permission from the owner of copyright. No, it's not that simple. If it were that simple, I wouldn't be here. Instead, the statute, the turn over your sheet, has a four-part balancing test, which has a lot of gray in it. There aren't a lot of sharp black and white areas here. So the, the copyright statute, if you, if you look here, has four parts. And, and were there to be a legal case, the judge or sometimes the jury would be asked essentially to balance each of these factors one at a time and determine who wins, either the copyright owner or the uh, individual invoking fair use. And it's a lot like the Olympics. You know, the, the judges hold up a card and it's one through ten. Well, this is more of either black or white. It's either going for the plaintiff, the copyright owner, or it's going for the defendant, the, the uh, individual invoking fair use. So let's go through these four quickly. The first of these balancing tests is the purpose and character of the use, including whether the use is of a commercial nature, which is disfavored, or a nonprofit educational purpose, which is better than a commercial use, but it doesn't necessarily put you in the in the green zone. Now, it, as part of this first balancing test, a, a, a term that comes up often is transformative, and it and it raises the issue as to whether the the borrowing is in a context that transforms the original, that doesn't just substitute for the purpose of the original but rather brings something fresh and different um, and, and incorporates the original from, from a very different perspective. The more transformative, the better claim to fair use generally, and in particular, the better claim to be the winner on factor number one. Um, and, and also, uh, I just want to emphasize that the mere fact that you're uh, a non-commercial entity doesn't mean you necessarily win this one. If that were so, the Red Cross would 
would be selling uh, Gone with the Wind. It doesn't work that way. Okay, next. The uh, next factor is the nature of the copyrighted work. Some types of copyrighted works lend themselves to being borrowed from better than other types of copyrighted works. Unfortunately for everyone in this room, works of the imagination are not so good for purposes of fair use. They do not lend themselves as well as, say, a scholarly work or a newspaper article or work that's mostly factual because facts can't be protected by copyright. The expression of facts can sometimes be protected, often be protected, particular words used to express a fact. But a fact itself can't be monopolized by anybody. So works that are more fact-oriented are more susceptible to fair use borrowings. Works that are more works of the imagination, novels, plays, music, everything we're interested in, is less susceptible to fair use borrowing. Third factor, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. Now this is a test of quality and quantity. Is the person doing the borrowing taking the heart of the original work or just some kind of peripheral part of it? Is the person doing the borrowing, that's the, the qualitative part, is the person doing the borrowing taking a large quantitative chunk. So if you're taking the heart or you're taking a large quantitative chunk, you have a worse argument for fair use than if you're taking something relatively peripheral to the original or, um, or a relatively small part of it. And this is best illustrated, say, in a, in a, in a review in the New York Times. <coughs> if, uh, if you tell the entire story and the article goes on for like five pages, that's probably going to be a problem. But if you if you're commenting on elements of, of a play, you can certainly quote from it. You can describe uh, parts of it. Of course, you see this every day. That's all fair use. Uh, fourth, the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. This is like the question presented by the fourth grade teacher. If I let you go to the bathroom, wouldn't I have to let everybody go? And that would make chaos. Well, this is a question along those lines. If I let you borrow, I'd have to let everybody borrow. And what would be the value of the original if everybody borrowed what you borrowed? Would it be untouched? That's great. You win that one. Would it be highly diminished because yours is substituting for the other one? That would not be good in a fair use balancing test. So just to, just, just to uh, remind you, what we just went through are four factors in a balancing test that applies to fair use. The mere fact that you're writing a parody doesn't put you in the winner's circle. There's still going to be an analysis in accord with those four factors. And of the four of them, the first and the last are most important. Is there a transformative use? And is your use, if everybody did it, going to undermine the economic value of the original. So, for example, if you do um, Gone with the Wind and do it chapter by chapter, but you simply change the names, well, that wouldn't work very well. Not very transformative and not a parody, for that matter, and, and also not, um, uh, well, it, it could affect the, value, the, uh, the economic value of the original. 
Um, that's the introduction. Any questions so far? Just uh, not not yet your personal questions, but any questions um, directed toward what I just just went through? Yes. Um, under the fair use defense, what is the difference between parody and satire? We're going to get to that. Actually, let's get to it right now. <laughs> Why wait? Um, I guess there are several answers to that. The, uh, the answer that you'd find in a dictionary is not a good answer for, for, for legal purposes. Uh, Ellen, one question. Should I repeat the question, or is, is that going I to pick up I think it'll pick it up, okay. Okay. I think it'll stay at the end. In the fair use co uh, context, there is a difference between parody and satire. Parody is something humorous that is directed toward the work from which it borrows. Satire is something humorous that is directed not toward the work from which it borrows, but rather something funny in society generally. So that um, it's not always easy to, to draw a, a bright line here, but if I... Um, by way of example, if I were to describe the O.J. Simpson trial in terms of um, uh, The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Zeus, and let's say I borrowed the, uh, the phrasing of Dr. Dr. Zeus, and I, and I borrowed the characters, and then I tried to do the O.J. Simpson trial uh, in the meter and using many of the words of Dr. Zeus, but of course it's not, not anything that Dr. Zeus has written, something different. Um, would that be satire or would that be parody? I think it's debatable. But there was such a case and the court decided, and this was the uh, Ninth Circuit in California, the court decided, let me make sure that was Ninth Circuit, yes, uh, in 1997, that that particular use of Dr. Zeus's works was a satire rather than a parody court didn't seem to get that it could have been both. But the court came down on satire. And the problem with satire from the Supreme Court's perspective is that satire stands on its own two feet. In other words, if you want to make fun of society, you don't necessarily need to borrow from anybody's work. You can go ahead and make fun of society. But if you want to make fun of the work from which you borrow, you have to borrow. In other words, you can't make fun of a piece of music without borrowing something from that piece of music. That's parody. So the law allows greater latitude for parody than it does for satire. And in fact, in some instances, cases have interpreted satire as, as being outside the scope of the, of the fair use parody uh, defense. Any other questions? Based on what I've said so far. You said there wasn't much of a difference between commercial, uh, the nonprofit nature of the institution. Is that, can you be more specific? Like, if, we, ah. if you're working for a nonprofit, most of the theaters, are, a lot of theaters are nonprofit. Did that, is there any sort of umbrella there that's not there for a commercial institution? Well, let me, let me, let me uh, clarify that a bit. I guess it's better to say that if you're doing a purely commercial use, such as using somebody's poster in your own advertisement without permission. Say you want to advertise uh, hairspray and, and you used uh, the, the illustration from um, the poster of hair 
actually be fitting. But you can't do that because that's truly a commercial use, advertising. It's really deeply into the, in, into the territory of, of commerciality. When, if you were to make a distinction between a nonprofit theater and a commercial theater, if it's a commercial theater, if, it, if it's for profit, if it's making investors money, the plaintiff can say, and on top of everything else, they're making money. If it's not for profit, the, the plaintiff, the author, the person bringing the lawsuit, can't say that. But that doesn't necessarily win the day for nonprofit. It's just that commercial is, is, is far less likely to uh, be on the right side of the fair use analysis than a nonprofit. Does that help? So there's no real hard, hard and fast rules on a lot of these. A lot of it depends on which way the court would go, which way, how they would view that. Well, let, let me tell you generally with respect to fair use, there are no hard and fast rules except someone with a little experience at this could identify a level of risk along a gradient. Some things are so far into the good side that they're hardly likely ever to be challenged, much less lose in court. Some things are, are so obviously not a fair use that they're, they're losers from the start and they can be identified. But many things fall into a gray zone in the middle, and, and the result is not always predictable, such as in the cat in the hat example. Can you think of any other examples, or can you give us any other examples of those those fair use that, it, from the get-go, it, it never stood a chance? Well, most 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 things that you'd look at and say, "Gee, that's an infringement," might uh, be defended, at least in an attempt at court by uh, fair use defense. But it's it's it just doesn't work for everything. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of some recent example. What yes. about something like, I, I mean, obviously I know you certainly don't know all the details, but I know that there's a show that's coming off Broadway that is literally a condensed version of all seven Harry Potter novels, and they don't claim to be commenting on it. They simply claim to be doing a two-person show that is condensing all seven Harry Potter books, which doesn't sound like a parody to me. doesn't sound like but, a parody to me. But, and... To, but Let's take a vote. <laughs> who thinks who right. thinks that's who thinks that's an infringement? Well, I didn't. Who thinks? All right. Who thinks it's not an infringement? And why don't you think that's an infringement? It's. it's I agree. It's an infringement. Okay. That takes <laughs> care of you. That leaves only one there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't really. Are they going to be using the words, or they're just going to be telling a story? I don't. To my knowledge, they are actually. It's like one man Star Wars, where they're actually using. Mm. They're just condensing it. Well, and my understanding from what I've heard is they do not have permission from Warner Brothers, but they have a commercial producer. They've announced it on Playbill, and so far there haven't been any legal issues about it, which is just one to me that falls in. Well, that's, that's a very good example because I really don't see how that can be defended by fair use. Right. Even if the exact words are not used, the story can be taken. And the story already belongs to somebody. And, and the characters and the settings and the plots. and I said plots. Uh, but the, the elements um, in all those categories will be adapted. 
Look at number two. Remember the monopoly rights of the author, the owner of copyright. Number two was adaptation. That seems to me quite clearly an adaptation, otherwise known as a derivative work. And and that falls squarely into the the zone of protection, uh, of monopoly protection of the author. Now, let's say it were funny. Let's say if um, every time the um, uh, some event uh, were, were described, um, there was some wry commentary on it, or, or it was uh, it was presented in counterpoint to something that happens later that makes the first event look ridiculous. Uh, some, or, or commenting on a character who just never gets the message, never seems to learn. That would be parody. How about Silence the Musical? Now, I don't know whether that was clear or not. Oh, Does anybody I actually, know? I actually know. Was it? It, it wasn't. Um, they they officially the official title of it is "Silence the Unauthorized Musical Parody," um, which apparently protects them from claiming that they're associated with the original. But f- the people that I know that worked on it, nobody came after them. They just they just did it, and nobody had an issue with it. And you know why that might be so? Because it's a parody. Yeah, it's, it's very clearly parody. Because it's a parody. I mean, and, 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 and straight from the artwork. I mean, you know it's a parody going in. The business about unauthorized, by the way, is not copyright related. That relates to something else okay. as to whether something's endorsed or not. Right. That's outside the zone of copyright, yeah. just for your information. And I should also say, just in terms of the Harry Potter, we don't know the details of no, that. No, of course not. So, this is what I've right, so. right. So we just have to be very careful about making judgments on, on things Absolutely. about so which we didn't, don't know anything. We, we, will, we will simply treat that as a hypothetical. Yes. Correct. And what if somebody were to have created a condensation of all of Harry Potter and presented without humor in an hour and a half? My answers apply to that hypothetical. Okay. Any other hypotheticals? Yeah. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Um, so if you have produced work that's from licensed work and you want to promote it online or, like, after the fact, could you say that it's... I mean, if it's just a short clip, is that fair use then? And if um, and if it's if you take out all the text, is that transformative? Like what Red Letter Media does with their reviews, their film reviews? Well, when you say licensed work, tell me what so you So, like, if you that. produce a play that Samuel French owns, you pay for it, for it to be up, and then you want to put a clip on YouTube because you want to promote your theater company, etc. Well, once, you, once you've obtained permission, particularly in writing, mm-hmm. you, the, the, there will be conditions on, on the license. Mm-hmm. So you have to read the license to see what falls within the license and what's not. Let's say hypothetically, what you just proposed is not in the license. Unfortunately, there might be something else in the license that would prevent you from invoking fair use, such as you will make no use of this property outside the scope of this contract mm-hmm. without authorization. So you have to you have to read the license, and that's certainly something you can negotiate. I'm not. I don't. I can't speak to whether Samuel French is going to respond to a request like that, but uh, maybe they will. It's certainly done a lot, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see everybody doing it, um, and I have contacted them. They haven't responded. So. I have a feeling that it has to do with the ability to market, and what I I I think, um, based on my general management stuff, 
that when you have the license, you have also, they grant you the ability to market that property. And I have a feeling it falls under that. But, but that's an instance of read the contract, read, read the license agreement. Yes. Are you responsible for, to get back all the way back to the original author? Say, for example, you adapt a piece of fan fiction and you have permission from the author of the fan fiction, or you have permission to use a song that samples another song. Are you responsible if it turns out that the, that the fan fiction was an illegal adaptation or, or excuse me, an un, uncopyrighted, unlicensed adaptation? Unlicensed adaptation. So you're raising the question now um, uh, about how you, how you go about clearing something, how you go, go about getting a license. And just to be clear, getting a license is the opposite of invoking the fair use defense. The fair use defense is what applies when you don't get a license. Um, so when I said before, if, if you use somebody's work and it's not subject to one of these exceptions, that has to be qualified by you don't have a license. So the next question then is, where do you get a license? From whom do you get it? And th th this set of monopoly rights begins with the author. Now, sometimes there works for hire, and the author is not human. The author might be a company for whom the author works. But in that, even in that case, the copyright law will call the employer the author. So that's a quick aside, but when I speak of author, I mean the original owner of copyright. So generally speaking, this, this suite of monopoly rights begins as the sole property of the author. And the author starts giving them away. They can be given away by dint of a license or by dint of a, an assignment. And each of these subrights can be either licensed or assigned. So it doesn't have to be the entirety of the copyright. So, for example, let's take the right of reproduction, and let's say, let's take Harry Potter. Um, a publisher will have made an agreement for the exclusive right to publish that book. So if you want to reproduce a chapter, it's probably not going to work out if you go to the author and ask for the author's permission, because that right no longer belongs to the author. It will now, in all likelihood, belong to a publisher. Uh, similarly, um, the right of um, adaptation, let's say motion picture rights. Would you go to author Rowling to uh, get permission to make another film? Probably not, because in all likelihood that right has been transferred to Warner Brothers. So you have to know where to go to get permission, and, and it will depend on who has the rights. Currently. Now, how do you find that out? There's one sure way to find out what has been registered in the Copyright Office, and that's to do a, a copyright search. So that major assignees and major licensees are going to record their rights with the U.S. Copyright Office. And the reason they do that is because then everyone is given what's called constructive notice that they are the owner of that right. And, and should it be violated, no one can raise the defense, hey, I didn't know. I thought I obtained it from the right source. The, the uh, system of recording these claims of rights in the Copyright Office obviates that. More informally, if you go to an author and ask for permission to do, to quote um, several lines of verse in your play, <clears throat> 
and it turns out that that uh, that right has already been transferred by the author. If it hasn't been recorded in the copyright office, and you're innocent, then you're okay. You're innocent. If it has been recorded in the copyright office, then you're not innocent. That's actually that's really interesting. That doesn't fully answer what I was asking though. Um, if if I do a play where I use, a, you know, sampling is um, when they create a song, they use bits of other songs. Um, and I feel like I have the license, I get, you know, written license from the person who created that song, only to later find out that they actually didn't have permission to use what they sampled. Or like fan fiction is when someone writes in the world, like if someone wrote about, I don't know, Ron's sister. So they're writing in the world that's created by J.K. Rowling, but it's their work. Is that, or, would we be liable well, really responsible for, for if using you're, the original song or, or Ms. Rowling's work? If, if you're borrowing from someone who's already infringed and you're taking the infringing part, the person from whom you've gotten permission cannot give you that permission. They've infringed. And by definition, they don't have the right. So you may think you have the right because you obtained it from this source, but if that source didn't have the right to begin with, ever, and simply infringing the original, <clears throat> um, you're you're not you're not saved. And in simplistic terms, might you protect yourself by if if you have a written agreement by the by the person in fa- who wrote the fan fiction or the sampler by having them in writing as part of the agreement or whatever, if there's an agreement, or maybe you should have a written agreement in which you say you know this attests that you have the right to be. That, that you, the fan fiction writer from whom you're borrowing, has the right to be um, borrowing from J.K. Rowling. Is that a way to protect yourself in that situation, or does that matter at all? Well, two things. One is, um, even if you have a written agreement with someone and that person agrees to <coughs> indemnify you and defend you against all claims, what's it worth? Uh, copyright suits are expensive. And, and if you're not borrowing from, say, uh, the, the head of Microsoft, uh, that, that indemnity may not be very valuable. But secondly, even if you were to have a written agreement with X, and X promises up, down, and sideways, that he had permission from J.K. Rowling, which he is now passing along to you, <laughs> but it's inherently ridiculous, that, that doesn't get you very far either. You have to. You have to use judgment. Yes. Um, Twenty years ago, we got a real thing. I'm ready. Anybody else have any questions on the intro? No. Okay. Let's go to real things. Just speak in hypotheticals, please. Well, Um, an institution asks um, a renowned actress to take a book. It's diaries written in 1941 to 43, and found though in 1983 and published. And this institution asked this actress to read the book and do excerpts from it. And so that actress gives the book to me, says, will you read the book and write this for me? So I do. So she reads it, she loves it, the um, the institution likes it, they do it. So now, if I would like to see it done somewhere, who do I have to get in touch with? Everybody? I mean, 
what happens? What a complicated question. Yeah. Let, let's just start with the diaries. You say they're in a book. Is it a published book? Yes. When was it published? It was published in, uh, in 1983. Is, London. Ah, London. <laughs> <laughs> was it published in this country? Um, I, I think so. It must have been. But I can find out. Let's say it is. Okay. Well, if it was published in this country, one thing you could do is find out whether um, it was renewed if it were published prior to, say, January 1, 1964. Let's say the diary was published in 1949, okay, but, hypothetically. Okay, but I know that. I just looked it up on, on Google. 1983 was when the publisher published it. I'm giving you a different example, oh, okay. but I'll come back to yours. Okay. <laughs> let's say let's say okay. it were first published in 1949. Okay. It would have it, and and it was a, an American work, not a, not an English work, and it was first published in 1949 in this country. Well, at that time, after 28 years, one had to renew a copyright, or it fell into the public domain. Okay. So that that would be one thing you could test if it if it fit a certain profile. You can find out from the copyright office whether it was renewed or not. Going back to your example, though, first having been published in 1983, by that time. But I, that doesn't necessarily. I just know that one, but it was originally written in Amsterdam, so it could be that it's not English. It, it, it um, for my purposes, it's either in the U.S. or, or not in the okay, U.S. Sorry. So for, for purposes of our discussion, okay. each of those countries had their own set of rules, but we're only talking about our set of rules. Okay. So let's say we, this diary was um, written, locked up, put in a drawer, discovered in 1980, published in 1983. By 1983, one no longer had to renew after 28 years. That's over. So um, it's not going to be in the public domain in all likelihood. If your, your excerpts put into a dramatic form borrow from the wording of the original or the story of the original or, or to, to, to get to the bottom line are, is substantially similar to the original um, then it, it sounds to me as though it's an adaptation of the original and who in this room knows about adaptations by now <laughs> it's one of the five monopoly rights of the owner of copyright now that owner of copyright might be long dead but that doesn't matter. Some it, the copyrights a, 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 a type of property, and it, it it passes to the heirs of the author. So, if you put it out, is it that they simply can sue you, or they just give you a cease and desist, and you just can't do it anymore? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> No, it's an infringement of copyright. What are the penalties for infringement of copyright, you might ask? The penalties in a civil action vary. If you borrow uh, from something in good faith, and you have really a good reason to think that you weren't infringing, but you do infringe, putting aside fair use for the time being, or even if you invoke fair use and you invoke it, uh, invoke it unsuccessfully, the... Um, the damages payable under the Copyright Act 
might be as little as a few hundred bucks or your profit, whichever is more. Let's say you haven't made any profit. On the other hand, if you infringe purposefully and willfully, like say the Amsters, Grocksters of the world, the penalty there could range from $30,000 to $150,000 per copyrighted work. Very substantial. Now, in this instance, somebody might sue you, and they might expect something more than a few hundred bucks, and then it would be up to you to prove that you really didn't mean it, that you really thought that what you were doing was not a copyright infringement. It could cost you far more in legal fees than than it than than what you might ultimately have to pay. But if the if the uh, person on the other side is able to demonstrate, even if it was, wasn't really in your head that this was uh, that this was uh, intentional, then it could be quite expensive. And not only that, not only would you have to pay your legal fees, but you'd have to pay the other side's legal fees too, if the work has been registered. If I were to mail, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, uh, let me be clear: legal fees of the other side aren't always awarded to the other side, but they can be if the work is registered prior to the infringement. Yes. If I were to mail a copy of the script to both the estate, if I could find the estate, and to the publisher, could they then take though what I did, since it's I took excerpts from them? And sort of feel like they own it. Well, let's let's first ask ourselves whether they could sue you just for doing that. Let's start with that. Then we'll go to the other question. Let's go back to the five monopoly rights. <laughs> what have you done so far? Have you reproduced the original? That, certainly excerpts of it. Yes. Yeah. You've made they, copies. A copy. Somebody read. It was used. I, I would think that the institution that asked for it and read it knew that it came from that. All right, but a de minimis number of copies that are not used for a commercial purpose, that are used simply for purposes of presenting right. an idea to somebody, that's that's not likely to be actionable. But let's go down the list. Have you adapted it? Yes, you have, but you haven't done anything with it yet. Again, probably not a problem. Have you distributed copies? No, you've kept them to yourself and you have two copies which you're sending to the heirs for their their review. So far, so good. Have you publicly performed it? I didn't. Sounds like you did. Someone did. Sounds like. Yeah, an act, a renowned actress who's now All right. gone. With your authority, has someone publicly performed it? Have you been complicit in a public <laughs> performance? <laughs> well, that that may not be so minimal. And would that also open up the institution who presented this to suit or to possible Well, every, everybody involved, yes. Yeah. Whether they were paid or not paid? Well, then you, get it, then you get into the question of uh, was money made, was it commercial, non-commercial. Those might influence the amount of damages to be paid. They don't influence the underlying question of whether there's an infringement or not. No one was paid. <laughs> <laughs> this is a this is a hypothetical anyway. None of our hypotheticals have problems. <laughs> May I ask a question? Do you know if the institution had license to do any of this? Would that matter? Maybe that wouldn't ma matter. Well, that would make all the difference. Okay. So because do you then, know? Then there'd be permission. Have you approached them first? I, I will ask. Them. 
that it, but they're probably the person who 20 years ago probably no one's there anymore who knows but they have files they have files upon files upon mm -hmm. files so let's, let's talk about another hypothetical where in fact you've got this book from a, a used book sale and and it's full of just wonderful things to borrow from and you hope in the first instance yeah i hope it's in the public domain it was published before uh, January 1, 1964. Let me rush down to the copyright office and see if it was renewed. And you go down there and you find out it was renewed. Oh, well. So it's still in copyright protection. But then you say, well, while I'm here at the copyright office, let me find out who currently owns those rights. And you find out that the Ajax Publishing Company was the last one to record. And that was uh, about 50 years ago. And there's no more Ajax Publishing Company. And you'd really like to know, where do I get permission to use this, this treasure trove of stuff that, that really no one else seems to have use for? The answer is, there's no answer. It's what's, that, would be, that would fall into a category known as orphan work. And occasionally, legislation comes up in Congress to allow for some mechanism by which people could use orphan works if they make a good faith effort to find the copyright owner and, and there's no indication in the copyright office <clears throat> where that uh, where uh, the owner can be found now, and the user puts some money aside, perhaps in a, in a fund to be established at the copyright. Okay, these are all mechanisms that have been proposed. None has been adopted. So right now, the answer when you are are uh, are faced with the obstacle of an orphan work, the answer is you can't use it. Google has this issue constantly, currently, because they're doing that that major. Um, project where they are making copies of books in libraries, in, in academic libraries. And uh, to the extent works are in the public domain, no problem. To the extent they get permission to do a work, no problem. To the extent they can't find the current owner of a work that's still protected by copyright, that's a problem. And, for, and Google would very much like orphan work legislation, but it doesn't exist yet. Would it not revert to the author once the publishing house went out of business? Or is that... I'm, in my hypothetical, okay. you can't find the author, you can't find the daughter of the author, you can't find anybody. So who would sue you if you did? <laughs> well, that's when the, the daughter you can't find. Right. <laughs> that's when they'd come out Just of the because so there wasn't a daughter. I said you, you can't, can't find the daughter. <laughs> which I believe was written around like 1912 or so, in which case it would make it in the public domain. But I hear everybody talking about that Disney owns the rights to it, so nobody can do anything with it. Well, if it's in the public domain, can Disney possibly own the rights to it? Well, but even like ABC's Once Upon a Time, that's a Disney affiliate. Oh, no, not uh, not Disney, but some somebody, somebody ha owns the rights to it so that even... The, the, I don't know, even like the Disney company who did the movie Peter Pan or whatnot can't feature it on their TV shows because there's somebody who owns the rights, even though it was written well before. All right, let me, let me, let me tell you the story of Peter Pan. Right. Peter Pan is a very, very peculiar right. example <laughs> for the following reason. I, I believe, uh, at least until recently, and maybe to this very day, in England there was a special piece of legislation passed to extend the copyright for Peter Pan. Yeah. Because, because no, not for the benefit of the author or the author's the heirs, but rather, state. yes, there's, oh, a, there's a, a, a children's hospital that benefits from Peter Pan. 
I'm not sure whether that's still the case today, but let's say it, let's say it is. The concern would be if you produce something in the United States and then you want to sh- show it in England, that's a problem if the work is still protected in England but not here. But if a work is originally published in the United States yes. in 1912, this, that's before January 1, 1923, and that's something you can be certain is in the public domain in the United States. What if it were published only in England prior to 1923 and then published in the United States March 5th, 1923? That could be a problem, it, and, and for reasons I won't go into. And in that case, could, Disney could also be um, have copyright to their image of Peter Pan, correct? Well, that's for sure. And so it also depends on what they were trying to use. Because Dis- because if they're doing something based on the Disney version of Peter Pan, I think the copyright Well, the Disney version of Peter Pan was done in the 50s. Right. So, so that's, that's still certainly still in, in uh, protection. But Remember, that's... just one more thing. Remember before I mentioned that there were some things outside of copyright that protect things? If you were to... Um, do a new version of Peter Pan and presented it to the public as if it were the Disney version, even though it's not. That's outside of copyright, but you can't do that either for obvious reasons. <laughs> yes, sir. I think that the exact question is happening with Wizard of Oz right now, yeah. where um, Warner Brothers is having all these lawsuits saying that they own the Wizard of Oz because it's the the image of it, the iconic well, I know, movie version. I know with Wicked, they were not allowed to use Ruby Slippers the name Toto, like all those, like th- mm. there were all these little things that they weren't allowed to use because of the MGM portrayal of the Wizard of Oz. Which was so, still in copyright. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that because it was in the book, but it wasn't in the movie? Well, for example, yeah, well, for example, in... The other way around. For example, in the book, there's silver shoes, in the movie, they're ruby slippers, so they were not allowed to say the words ruby slippers. But also, but these particular things have a, an, an iconic value. They can valuable cultural images, so when a company or someone looks at them, if they weigh these things, I mean, I mean, these things have a weight and a value because of that. Well, so, take Harry Potter. Yeah. Virtually every in it, everything in it at, at, by this point has some iconic cultural weight. Does that mean you can borrow from it? No. 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 In fact, the more famous a thing is, the more likely it's going to have elements that sure. have some iconic weight. Now, would that help you, though, support a parody? Yes. The more iconic, the, the bigger target it is. Right. But not for straight borrowing. Right. Parody is something else. Well, let's break. Let's break. That's a very good question. Let's break that down a bit. <clears throat> Let me start with the principle that nobody likes a mustache painted on her baby. Mm-hmm. So that almost any parody, by definition, is going to be unpleasant <laughs> to the mother of the, of that work. Uh, does that mean that the uh, the author can complain on that basis alone? No, it's irrelevant to the analysis. Unless, unless um, it, it it goes really off the deep end into areas of um, obscenity, and obscenity has its own set of rules uh, that that could. Um, make a parody less defensible than it would have been otherwise. 
Yes. Along those lines, here's, here's another hypothetical. Hypothetically, let's say that um, a parody work was done, and obviously parody is subjective, but let's say for this hypothetical that um, everybody involved, including um, legal advisement, felt that this would most likely be deemed a parody should this ever go to a court of law. Um, this parody was um, done and received um, a cease and desist with the knowledge that the people who put it on did not have any form of financial assistance to defend themselves. Therefore, it turned into a freedom of speech issue where they were going to be forced to never do this work again purely because they didn't have enough money to defend themselves when if they did, most likely they would be proven correct and in, within fair use of court. Um, and I, that, that's a hypothetical situation, but I also know that it has gone on in a lot of different areas. And if there's any legal strides being made in that or advice for somebody dealing with that or whatnot. Well, that, that's, that's in the category of bullying. Right. And, um, and I, I don't approve of bullying. But there is, um, there are volunteer organizations that could assist. Uh, there's. Um, so let's hypothetically say those volunteer organizations don't want to get themselves enmeshed in a lawsuit with a potentially um, very big Goliath to this David case. One can, <laughs> one can, well, there's, there's um, volunteer lawyers for the arts. They, they're, I don't know that they're a we fearful bunch. <clears throat> Pardon me, please? Hypothetically, these people have been to and turned down. Because they didn't want to get enmeshed in a lawsuit. One can defend oneself. Right. One can, all, I mean, that's that's not a very appetizing proposition, I suppose. But if it if it's so clearly an act of bullying. Well, I mean, anything, obviously, there, anything that's parody, there's obviously a gray area. So it's certainly not 100% guaranteed that a judge would be. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that parody is pretty gray. There are some parodies at the far end of the spectrum of risk that I mentioned before, right. but most parodies are not so not pinned against the uh, against the edge. Right. It's it's way. kind of a very specific case, but it is an instance of bullying. Um, well, also, uh, not to not to uh, speak in defense of bullies, but sometimes what's pretty obvious to you as a parody isn't so obvious right. to them. Right. And and as as you may have guessed by now. Different lawyers can come to different right. viewpoints, and your lawyer might think it's pinned to the edge right. uh, on this, uh, of, of, uh, of acceptability on the spectrum of risk, but theirs might not. Is there any better way to resolve it? I mean, to, just to try to resolve the issue, since obviously there's not the money mm -hmm. to just hire a lawyer and duke it out in front of a judge? Well... The white flag surrender is, is one way, or um, or if if you're so uh, clearly in the right, mm -hmm. in federal court, there's a, a a complaint. Someone files an answer that can simply be I deny it all, mm -hmm. and then there's a meeting scheduled with the judge or with the magistrate. Mm -hmm. And um, while this is not an easy thing to do, anybody who who wishes to, who's uh, accused of something like this can appear at that meeting and, and tell his or her side of it. And and the judge might put some pressure on the bully to, to cut it out. But that's only when it's really, obviously, permissible. I mean, also mention, just in passing, you, you referred to the, uh, the First Amendment. 
The First Amendment is in our Constitution. The copyright law is in our Constitution. Who wins in the battle of First Amendment versus copyright? The answer is, it's a tie. Mm -hmm. and, and generally speaking, fair use is the First Amendment accommodation in the land of copyright. There is no First Amendment right outside of fair use to borrow from other people's copyrighted works. Because they're both co-equals. I do think a non-legal approach in that and would be hiring a publicist. How so? Well, because sometimes, you know, if it is a case of bullying, right. Um, right. you know, you, you and if it's a very clear parody, you may have some luck in terms of, you know, fighting a Goliath with a, hey, they're, they're bullies. Right. I, I, I recall, and I hope I recall accurately, that um, the Girl Scouts had been singing copyrighted songs around their campfires <laughs> since time immemorial. <laughs> yeah. But someone got the idea to make them obtain a license, so a lawsuit was commenced. I think that method worked mm. in, that, <laughs> in, in that circumstance. Because let's also just hypothetically say that the parody performance was a charity benefit to raise money for um, for children. <laughs> well, if it was a charity, it was a charity benefit. Chances are it's not going to happen again. So maybe there's not that much to be lost by simply saying I won't let it happen again. It's it's a little more complicated than that, but just meaning that this particular. <laughs> Publicists cost money too. They do, but they cost usually a little bit less than each other. <laughs> they have they've depends. had much less less uh, less schooling. Mm. Yes. Sir. Is there such thing as a, a parody that isn't funny? <laughs> that's an excellent that's question. question. That's no. an excellent question. No. <laughs> Let's say um, judges have actually um, opined on that point, and by and large, they'll say. It may not be a good parody, but it's not for us to judge the quality of parodies. Either it's a parody or it's not a parody. But if something is completely unfunny, and, and no one, no reasonable person would interpret it as, as being intended to be humorous, then even if the author of the parody thought it was a parody, it's not a parody. But if it's even marginally a parody, Judges tend to give those things the benefit of the doubt. I'll give you an example. Uh, family Guy was sued by the owner of copyright in the song When You Wish Upon a Star. And that was because on Family Guy, um, the, the principal character his name is Peter, I believe, uh, decided that he needed a lawyer who was, sorry, an accountant who was Jewish. And he went to the window and he sang a song, which was entitled, this is not necessarily tasteful, but it gives you a sense, of, uh, it, it responds to your question. The song was entitled, I Need a Jew. And the lyrics were, which I will not attempt to sing, but the lyrics were, Nothing else has worked so far, so I'll wish upon a star. Wondrous dancing speck of light, I need a Jew. Lois makes me take the rap, cause our checkbook looks like crap. Since I can't give her a slap, I need a Jew. 
where to find a Baumerstein or Stein to teach me how to whine and do my taxes, though by many their abhorred Hebrew people I've adored, even though they killed my Lord. I need a Jew. Oh my God. <laughs> right. So that was sung to the tune of, or substantially to the tune, of When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. Going back to drawing mustaches on our babies, uh, that was not taken, uh, uh, was, was not taken with, with humor. And, and, and the copyright owner sued. Well, I think that was an example of a judge who said, I'm not going to say whether this is hilarious or not, but it's, it's, it, it, it passes the sniff test for being a parody. And, and let me ask you, was it a satire or a parody? Well, you could argue both. You could argue both, but it certainly had its roots in parody. Because, and I'll tell you why, then the judge points out some things why. Um, Peter goes to the window, he looks at stars. Um, That's about it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I would think it's more of a satire, myself. There's something about parody that also has a great amount of respect for the subject it's parodying. It's almost, it's almost a reverential form. For me. Not always. Not always. Nah. In fact, the funnier ones are quite the opposite. <laughs> but in any case, this, this um, actually, uh, um, this case was thrown out on the basis that it was sufficiently parodic. And um, there were other elements that the court found that might have been the uh, substance of, uh, of parody, which I think were something of a reach such as the fact that Walt Disney had been reputedly anti-Semitic. Now, between you and me, I think that's a bit of a reach yeah. to say that that fact justifies this particular use as a parody. But be that all as it may, the court found it was sufficiently parodic and, and applied the fair use test, um, went through the four factors, <clears throat> and, and the Family Guy people won. Um, this judge also said, by the way, that even if it is a bit of a satire, maybe we shouldn't be so hard on satires. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a footnote in a Supreme Court case, the very f- same footnote that judges often look to when rejecting satire, also actually allows, maybe, maybe satire may have a toehold, where there's a, a relationship to the original work, even though the content of the satire looks out at society at large, and most importantly, there's no economic effect on the original. Is there any economic effect on Pinocchio or When You Wish Upon a Star? No. So this judge said, well, even if there were a smidgen of satire, maybe maybe that's not so bad either. Do you know if it was Disney that filed the lawsuit or the composer that filed the lawsuit? I know who it was, and it was not Disney. It was the Bourne Company, which owns the copyright in the composition. So is, is that to say with the song that if you're doing a parody of the song that the composer of the music has no influence? Well, let's... We're, we're all judges. You are the defendant. Judges, how would you analyze that, that question? You would go through the four factors. First of all, you decide whether it's a parody or not. If it is a parody, you'd say, well... That's on the, generally on the right side of fair use, but we still have to go through the four factors. How much have you taken of the original? Was the use transformative? 
um, and so forth. Well, in this case, um, I don't think the exact song was taken, but it was pretty close on the music side. And on the lyric side, um, phrases like, wish upon a star, that was taken, uh, not too much more. But the, the, the music really was the, was the bigger issue. Yes? Sorry, you keep mentioning when things are published in the U.S. Does that mean if, uh, for example, a new Jane Austen was discovered, or there's a piece that was written in the 1800s that was written in English, doesn't get published in the U.S. until 1950, that, it's still, that it would still be um, out of bounds to use now? That may very well be protected by copyright in the U.S. In fact, I'd say it probably is. So it's based on the publishing date? It is for works from before January 1, 1978. And for foreign language, they've only copyrighted the translation. Well, there's one other thing I, I should, before I go on, I mean, there's one other thing to tell you. And that is, there's a somewhat complicated rule for works that were not published before January 1, 1978, but were published um, by, I think it was a date in 2002. I'd have to double check that. And um, they then get a term of copyright that can end no sooner than 2047. This is not a simple matter. But if it wasn't published by this date, which I think was 2002, then the term of copyright flips to the way the term is measured for works published after January 178, which is life of the author plus 70 years. So that if what you're talking about was not published by this date, and Jane Austen's been dead for more than 70 years, it could be public domain. If it was before 78 or after 78. Don't, don't, don't take what I just said literally, <coughs> but take the gestalt of it. The, <laughs> being that there's a special rule for works that were not published before January 178, and were still not published as of the date in the early 2000s, those, those works are more likely to be in the public domain than a work not published before January 1, 1978, but published before the state in the early 2000s. The, the whole thing, as I indicated earlier, about determining public domain status, it's, it's something of a thicket. It's not really something we can cover here today. But we, we can be pretty sure be t if a work is published in the United States prior to January 1 of 1923 or 1928? 1923. 1923, that it is in the public domain. We can be pretty sure. We can be pretty sure this week. <laughs> <laughs> and let me explain what I mean by that. I, I have a client who is an opera composer, <clears throat> and he began work on a work of Sinclair Lewis that was supposed to enter the public domain in the late 90s. He began writing his opera in the early 90s. Looking at his clock, okay, public domain coming, public domain coming. They changed the rules uh -oh. between the time he began writing the opera and the time that the uh, that the opera was was ready to be performed. And even if it had been performed, it still wouldn't have mattered because the rules were changed. Copyright was extended, um, and he ended up going and, and getting a license from the uh, copyright owner. How about the image of a of a painting? Is that the same 
year? Or is that Another fascinating question. Paintings are peculiar because there isn't a lot of law about when a painting is published. Now, if somebody makes an engraving of a painting and that's published, well, to the extent the painting is incorporated in the engraving, that's a date of publication we can all live with. But what if the painting is never reproduced in a book or in postcards and simply hanging on the wall? The next question is, and I'd say this is sort of the leading thought at the moment, because there isn't a lot of law on this subject. <clears throat> but the leading thought is that it depends on where the painting has been hanging. If the painting has been hanging in a public place and people are allowed to come and look at it as they wish, is that published? Maybe not. Because then the question is whether people are allowed to make copies or not. If people are allowed to come and look at it and make copies, which I suppose could include it could include uh, oil painting copies as opposed to camera copies, then I think the leading um, thought now is that that painting would be uh, published, and then you begin measuring from the date of publication. But again, that's a thicket. Going back to the whole issue of public domain. Yes? And what if you want to use, um, uh, hypothetically, the uh, historic, uh, if you want to use the transcripts of, say, a Senate uh, hearing and the images? An interesting, uh, for a parody or for, re or for no, straight no, reproduction? No. Okay, for straight reproduction? The federal, the federal government has no copyrights. So anything that is, is authored by the federal government, there's no copyright. It's free as the air. Use as you will. The images is uh, images? What images? Well, say that it was on television. And television? <laughs> That's something else. Does the, t does, does the federal government have a television transmitter that comes to your living room? I don't think so. Then the question is whether it's, say, on CNN. Now, CNN, again, I, I, I'm, don't, don't take this as gospel, but I believe CNN, last time I looked anyway, CNN makes a distinction between its recording of of the proceedings in on the floor of of the Senate and, and the House of Representatives, and and distinguishes that from it sending its cameras off to um, to say uh, a senator speaking at a charity event. Um, the latter, CNN, I believe, if this is still the rule, considers that its property, copyrighted property, and the former, it um, it so it allows copying. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, to the extent it has a copyright interest, and it may not, uh, it doesn't enforce it. Yes? Do you have any advice when asking for, this is probably, might not be in your realm, but if, if you're asking for the rights to adapt a novel, for example, of uh, <clears throat> a deceased author, do you have any hints of how to ask for permission in a way that will get permission. <laughs> uh, well, and you want to adapt the novel? Are you going to make it funny? Are you going to make it a parody? Well, if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're going to make it a parody, and it's going to be a really good parody, yeah. the kind of parody that nobody's going to challenge as a parody, uh, don't ask. Don't ask. That's what fair use is for. 
if it's that, if it's pinning the edge of this spectrum of risk mm-hmm. on the good side, don't ask. Because remember the principle: nobody likes a mustache painted on mm-hmm. her baby. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's if it's more of a gray zone, I guess you'll have to ask. And if it's not a parody, you certainly have to ask. Now, if you have to ask, and at least there's an argument that you don't have to ask, either because you're taking so little, and it's arguably a fair use, but you don't want to, you don't want to expose yourself to the risk of being in the gray zone. One useful way of asking would be, I don't have to ask, you write in your letter, but I mean, I've been advised it's not necessary for me to ask, but out of my great respect for the author and, and the author's heirs, I would I would prefer not to proceed without authorization. And if you'd like to see what I'm doing, I'd be happy to show it to you and all that kind of thing. So that's one way to frame your request from out of the gray zone. <clears throat> and let's say that somebody says no, get lost. Well, in that case, I would recommend you move it out of the gray zone toward the safer zone. Um, that's my best advice. Otherwise, just uh, respect and, uh, and and goodwill uh, will, will get you some distance. I have a question. Oh, one second. Let's jump on that. Um, piggybacking back to the federal government having no copyright, <laughs> could you talk about the things that are subject to copyright and the things that are outside of that realm that you can pick and adapt freely without worrying about? Yes. Ideas are free as the air, as I said before. You can't copyright an idea. Now, having said that, you, you, you can copyright the expression of an idea. So the particular words taken to express an idea, or sometimes even a particular organization, uh, an original organization, given the expression of an idea. For example, let's say you, you go to a nonfiction book. And it has it tells you the story of uh, of uh, events leading up to riots in the 1890s, and it does so by means of flashback, or it, uh, for example, it, it, it's not a linear presentation of the chronology, or it does so by reference to witnesses from a particular category, um, and and uses uh, the testimony of those witnesses in an original way. That that type of treatment might then fall into the category of expression of an idea. But for you to take facts from that nonfiction work, such as the date the riot occurred, the date that one of these witnesses saw something leading up to the riot, the names of the witnesses, even if those facts were dug out with great industry and effort, you can do that, in this country anyway, because facts are not Protectable. So that's that's the big thing that lies out of outside of copyright. Um, other things lie outside of copyright, but it's not as obvious to anybody walking down the street. For example, there's a French phrase known as "sens affaire," S C E N E S A F A I R, and I think there's an e on the end, but I wouldn't I wouldn't stake my life on it. Those are generic tropes that at this point in life nobody can monopolize. So even if in somebody's novel 
they uh, they begin it. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> I mean, putting aside the fact that that's certainly not protectable for lots of reasons. But let, let's say there are other things in there. For example, um, characters. Uh, uh, elements. The old person was wizened and had wrinkles. Well, all old people have wrinkles. Or the, the child was <coughs> winsome and bubbly. Well, so what? Those things can be protected because they're, they're elements of, of the genre. Uh, for example, if you're writing a gothic novel, you're writing about vampires. The vampires um, uh, bite the necks of each other and blood comes out. Well, nobody can protect that, even if it hadn't fallen into the public domain. It's now such a generic feature of that kind of novel that even if you assemble a fair number of those, those sens affair, chances are you're still not going to be infringing somebody's copyright. Unless, and this is why I say it's not necessarily something that's going to be obvious to anybody, unless you cross over a line and you begin to get into some zone of, ex, uh, of of creative use of those sense of fair. But in some analyses of copyright, <coughs> judges will simply rake out all the sense of fair and rake out all the public domain obviousness, and and then what's and then look at what's left, and what's left can look like Swiss cheese. But that's not always the way they do it. Sometimes they, they look more at the entirety. And while little elements of Sen's affair will will be found not to infringe, <clears throat> it, 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 the analysis isn't always starting from a uh, perspective of a of a piece of Swiss cheese with all these holes in it. Yes, sir. Um, I have a question about transformative works. Um, as a choreographer, using some others source material as inspiration for work. So say a book of poetry that I want to bring to life on a stage. Not using the words, just using the fact that I've read it and maybe naming the piece in relation to the book so that the audience knows that there's a reference. How gray is that? Well, let's start with the, the question of whether there's a story in the original. Okay. Is there? No. There's, okay. It's uh, no. Let's say it's a work of verse, mm -hmm. and let's say it's mostly impressionistic. No. Okay. Is there a story in your choreography? No. Good. <laughs> <laughs> then I, be, then it's like original music, original choreography. All right. Well, then, then let's say you kept it to yourself. Nobody would know. Right. But, <laughs> but you don't want to do that. You want to do a homage yep. to the verse, and you want people to know that this was inspired by this piece yep. of, of verse. You're then out of copyright land. You're into what we were talking before about perhaps other ways that the owner of that verse might have an issue with that. Okay. And, and in a nutshell, the owner of verse might have an issue if there is any impression given or or assumed, even if not intended by you, that that the owner of that verse has been affiliated with or has endorsed your work, if that's not the case. So going back to Silence, the unauthorized uh, musical, uh, that, that uh, is an attempt to neutralize that other factor. So that um, I would be careful about using the original title of the verse as the title of your choreography. Right. 
But if you want it in, in the playbill, this is the easiest answer, I suppose, to go on at some length. I was sitting at home one day, and I, I picked up the book, and I, and I was inspired to write this. Um, that's fine. Or even sometimes a subhead, if you're really careful, and you don't write it in a way that implies an affiliation or endorsement, that can be, that can be acceptable. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. I just one thing we haven't touched on at all is fair use in biography. If you want to do a biogra biographic piece on a, on a you know famous person, um, a celebrity of sorts, say a, say a let's say a non-politician but not an actor, um, a sports figure, let's say, um, are there are there things to if you don't have the license if you don't have the right, are there things to avoid and are there directions that you can go in? Okay. Let me go back also to your question about what's copyrightable and what's not. For something to be copyrightable, I should have said this before, for something to be copyrightable, it has to be reduced to a fixed medium. And a fixed medium can be paper, can be recording tape, can be uh, a disc, can be a hard drive, can be a lot of things. But, but, but in the case of a biography, if all you're talking about is somebody's life, it has not been reduced to a fixed medium, assuming nobody's come before you and written it, in which case you'd be concerned with infringing perhaps the copyright in that earlier biography, but not in terms of taking the facts, because as we said before, facts can be taken freely, but there are other elements, let's say there were flashbacks or uh, distinctive organizational schemes. Okay, but putting that aside, Let's say we're not looking back at an earlier work that has that that is capable of being copyrighted, and all you're talking about is somebody's life. That is outside the realm of copyright. That is inside the realm of the First Amendment. It's another realm, and it's also uh, inside the realm of what's known as the rights of publicity and privacy. But you know what trumps the rights of publicity and privacy? the First Amendment. So particularly if you're writing a biography about a public figure. In this country, because of the way the First Amendment has been interpreted, you don't have to ask that person's permission. There's a famous case involving uh, Howard Hughes, going back some years, where uh, an unauthorized biography was written, and Howard tried to stop it. And the answer was, no, you don't own your life. Nobody owns your life. Nobody owns his or her life. Um, now, that's not to say that you can <coughs> blow the whistle on highly personal uh, facts pertaining to the lives particularly of private people. Mm. I mean, there are, there are some limits to this. But if you're talking about matters of legitimate public interest, and particularly in the context of a public figure, you don't have to ask anybody's permission. Now that someone may say, well, you better not copy anything from my diaries, you better not copy anything out of my books, um, because they own the copyrights and those things. So just because you're writing a biography doesn't necessarily give you the right to borrow from their works, unless it's a fair use. And how would you figure that out? You'd go through the four facts, four factors. And, and uh, for one thing, it wouldn't take too much, and you'd make it transformative because you'd put it in a, in a context of criticism or comment and so forth. But going back to the elements of a um, 
public figure's life, uh, they are not monopolizable by the public figure. Great. Yes. Um, I have a question more about scale. Um, say uh, someone was participating in the evening that was like a fundraiser for a very small, like off of a off Broadway theater company, and they wanted to choreograph a dance to, I don't know, like a song that Dolly Parton sings or something like that. Um, and like, technically, if someone was to have paid like an admissions ticket sit there in that audience for a couple hours and listen to this Dolly Parton song and watch people dance to it. Does the creator of that piece owe something to Dolly Parton and the, um, the people? To whoever owns the music. What? To whoever owns the music. Right, right. So, yes. <clears throat> well, um, sometimes that kind of thing can be a fair use. Okay depending on the size of the audience, depending on whether tons of money are being collected, um, it, it might be a little difficult to fit that with fair use, um, unless it's a parody or unless it otherwise falls on the right side of the analysis when you go through these four factors. But it's, I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. And then, so, and then it really only becomes an issue of scale once people, like, like, say I wanted to make this, or someone wanted to make this Dolly Parton dance. I have no interest in Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> someone wanted to make a Dolly Parton dance and wanted to put it on national television and advertise it all over the place and had never approached Dolly Parton. Like, that, is that kind of the tipping point of when it becomes bigger and more commercial? Well, let's go back to factor number one. Mm -hmm. If it's commercial, forget it. Right. Um, although, remember, the New York Times is, is not given away for free either even though it borrows from works day in, day out. So the fact that something is sold doesn't necessarily make it a commercial use. Right. <clears throat> but putting that aside, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't address this in terms of where does it fit on the scale of scale. Mm -hmm. And that's because in the example you gave, you might find a judge who would say, oh, this was a de minimis use. This was a use that was... Uh, was for a particular um, uh, artistic event that was so small that um, that we're not going to apply copyright to this. Mm -hmm. But you might also get a judge who says, well, this is what the letter is, mm -hmm. and that sounds like it's uh, a use that's not de minimis, that's fallen on the side of, of, of some substance, and therefore it's an infringement. And then you're in the zone of how, ma how much damages do you have to pay. And I guess my scale question is actually, like, who goes around looking for this? Like, are there, like, copyright, like, secret agents around? <laughs> and there's not, right? Like, it's based on whoever, like, if it's a universal music or whoever who owns all these songs, do they go out searching, or is it when things get well, called to their attention? That's really, really just a practical answer to that. If, if I write an article and I have it published, and I'm the only one who cares right. if anyone else borrows yeah. from it, chances are my eyes and ears are not so uh, ubiquitous that I'm likely to detect anything. <clears throat> but take J.K. Rowling. Think of all the people who have an interest in so many aspects of those works. There are many eyes and ears, and employees, <coughs> and brothers, sisters, and, and cousins of those many employees, yep. uh, so that uh, there, are, there are spies everywhere. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Really? And most things fit between those two extremes. Right. And there are also Google alerts, uh, which really, which a lot of producers use. I mean, you really put in your show and you look for anything on that, and you can find very easily unauthorized productions that way. Well, likewise, I'm also guessing that if you're J.K. Rowling, you're not going to decide to go out and sue every single... I mean, you might send out cease and desist, you might... But, I mean, it would be... Well, she wouldn't, but she doesn't own many of these rights anymore. Well, right. I'm just saying, like, for Warner Brothers or whatnot, like, certainly protect your work and certainly send out cease and desist, but, like, for every person who decided to play the Harry Potter theme music at um, some random event, if they tried to, like, sue every... Like, you know, that would also probably be a little... Make that book... Well... Who's to say they won't, in your case? <laughs> Who's to say they won't make an example out of you? No, no, I'm not saying no, Even if course. they let that one, that one, and that one go by. No, of course, I'm not saying no, that. I'm, not, I'm saying that seriously. No, I understand. Right, it's, it's yeah. dangerous to make assumptions. Oh, no, I'm not saying right. to ever, ever make assumptions. Yeah. Yes? To piggyback on what she was saying, what about instances of dance competitions? These are yeah. national mm. things that are happening across the country every single weekend, every year, and the companies are using popular music, and in many cases, the same song, let's say it's a Kanye West song that everyone's using. That song is probably played at least a dozen times, and it's a three-day show three times. So 36 things, 36 times in a weekend, you know, and the season is, what, five, six months. Somebody like Kanye West, Beyonce, these are... They're way up there. They're like a J.K. Rowling. How could they come in and say this is copyright infringement? And, and you're, the companies sorry. that are holding the competitions, or would they be going after the studios that choreograph them? Well, you're also uh, positing that the venue in which this is occurring doesn't have a license to perform the music. That's part of your well, hypothetical. Yeah, because they're usually in auditoriums. Um. Sometimes fair use extends to non-commercial use that is really non-commercial, such as the Girl Scouts singing about their uh, campfire singing Kanye West. (laughs) 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 Also, these are are dance competitions. They're part of dance schools and wouldn't that part. Well, educational no, doesn't necessarily get you off the hook. But they're selling tickets to these dances. Right, and the parents have paid thousands of dollars for their child to be there, so it's it's massive profit. So you really have two questions. Question one is, does it sound like an infringement to me if none of this is licensed? The answer is yes. Question two, does it sound like the agents of Kanye West are going to come find you? Probably not. But that's a very different question. Because, as I said before, you never know. We're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we're, we're over over time here. Um, but thank you all for coming, and thank you, Neil Orsini. You're welcome. Thank you. thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.